Welcome everyone, my name is Emily Sexton. I'm very happy to see so many excited people here to talk about feminism on a cold Saturday afternoon. Um, my, I would like to acknowledge that we're gathering on the lands of, on the Kulin Nation. Um, we are here um, in Wurundjeri and um, Bunurong country. Um, we pay all of our respect to elders past, present, those who are here with us today. Um, and thank you for letting us gather here on your land. Um, Lorna is the elder with us on this panel, and she's going to give us um, some really interesting insights into this place and its long history um, as a sort of gathering point for feminist thought, feminist discussion, um, and we'll hopefully get to that later on. Um, I'm going to quickly introduce this really large and excellent panel. Um, but before I do that, I just wanted to um, get a sense of, in the room how many of you have seen or are going to see Trilogy, um, Nick Green work? Oh, not everyone. Okay, cool. Um, That's good. <laughs> so that, Everybody uh, has to see it. It's brilliant. It's I can say that because I didn't show. make the work. It's really good. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you'll have to make do with us. Um, now, speaking of us, um, so there's eight people here today. There is absolutely no way that we can speak to feminist experience across the board because it's so diverse and rich. So if there is a moment when you as an audience feel like your experience or perspective isn't being represented um, here, then I'd very much like you to speak. Um, this, I'd like to consider this a sort of porous conversation um, where we can let all sorts of people into it. That said, we have an hour um, and we're not going to solve nothing, um, but we might get a little bit away along. Um, uh, I'm also going to tell you that Town Bloody Hall is going to screen afterwards and if you can't get into the show because it is sold out, that will that is an amazing, amazing um, piece of content that is well worth revisiting if you haven't seen it before. Um, when I was asked to take on this panel by Jackie, I was wrote... I, had this like reaction. I, I'm not scared of many things, but I was scared of doing this. Um, and because I was scared, I knew I had to do it. Um, and so I told her that, and she's like, come on, you'll be fine. And then she admitted that halfway through the show the other night, she was like, what have I done to Emily? She's Norman Mailer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So um, I will do my best <laughs> to be as far away from that as possible. <laughs> Um, without further ado, I'm going to introduce our panel and I'm going to do it in age order. We just figured that out. Um, so, Rani Pramisti. Oh, no, no. no oh, no, no, no. no. <laughs> Whoops, there we go. Naika Gori um, is a Gunai, Kajimara, Wurundjeri and Yoda Yoda woman. Um, she works across youth programs in a range of different contexts. Um, then Rani... Is, uh, she wears three hats. She's a performance maker, an arts producer and an advocate for the arts. Her work is in all three is intercultural and she's in, and intergenerational in nature. Um, then, who was it? Uh, Nick. Uh, it was Nick yeah, Green, yeah. Um, who is an artist based in Scotland and the director of the trilogy, the show. It's taking here at Arts House. Um, uh, then Van and Celeste, at the same age. Van Badham is a weekly columnist for Guardian Australia. She's a writer and a theatre maker, an activist and a feminist. Celeste, unfortunately everyone gets my prize for best one-liner. Um, Celeste Little is a Gen X Aboriginal ranting feminist who frequently threatens to burn stuff. <laughs> 
Kate McNeil on my right is a lifetime activist, half-life academic, and full-time feminist. And I'm a long-term, um, uh, I'm a long-time admirer of Kate's, um, as a former teacher of mine. And finally, Lorna Hannon um, lives in North Melbourne, whose particular history is graced with the thoughts and actions of radical women. Thank you for being here, Lorna. Um, you want to, yeah, let's get a round of applause. Cool. So it's a, it's a great bunch of people. Um, where, are we, where I wanted to start, and it was a prompt from Ang Harrodwin-Jones, who's the artistic director of this space, um, was to um, ask each of the people on the panel to ask a question of someone of another generation about their feminism. So we're going to start with you, Rani. Um, and your question, yeah. and you can direct it to anyone of a different generation of oh, your choosing. Yeah. I'm going to direct it to Lorna. Um, cool. Um, I had a similar reaction, by the way, Emily, in terms of being asked to be on this panel, because I was just like, oh, God. Um, but my question, um, I'll just say it, and then I'll give you the little backstory. So, Lorna, mm -hmm. what have you learned about love? Love of oneself, love of one's community, love of one's intimate partners, love of one's dreams, and how to best nurture and practice it. And a little bit of context to that question is, um, it stems from my own family experiences. Um, I have, uh, one half of my family is quite male dominated. It's uh, my father is one of five brothers and the other half is very female dominant, um, where my mom is one of six uh, girls. And um, all of, I'm quite close to the women in my family, and all of them are survivors of domestic violence and abusive relationships in some form or, or another. So I think this has shaped um, some of the lessons that they've taught me about love, um, out of love for me. So yeah, I'm interested, Lorna, in to hear what you've learned about love and all the many forms it takes. I think the thing that really deepened my understanding of love and changed it forever was having babies. To have a, that new life in your arms and to look down into the eyes of a learning machine <laughs> is the most extraordinary experience. And it taught, as each child grew, of course, the child taught me how to love. So that was what deep, deepened my understanding of love. But at the other end of it, I just immediately thought of my grandmother who used to sit you on the couch beside her and tell you stories that lasted nearly all afternoon. She was a wonderful storyteller and great confidence in her storytelling. <laughs> so... <laughs> um, I have watched men struggle to learn how to love. The men in my family have struggled to learn how to love. And I have really come to respect the difficulties that they face in moving outside themselves. Yeah. Mm. Is that enough? Mm. <laughs> Can I ask about the community, love of one's community, and how to best nurture and practice it? Oh, well, how could I? <laughs> I'm in this wonderful position. I've been living in North Melbourne for 50 years. There are people all up and down every street who either I know or I can pretend I know <laughs> when they're out walking with their dogs. And, um, and when I first came to live in North Melbourne, it was a place where, lots, where people said good morning to each other whether they knew each other or not. And we still tend to do that quite a lot. So that might sound all very superficial, but no, it's not. When the lady in the next street died, 
We understood that something was the matter because her rubbish bins hadn't been put out on Monday morning. And so we were able to go in and find her and have her body looked after. And that's the kind of love. Although some of the people weren't sure when we started talking which lady it was. Was it the lady from that house or that house? They didn't know her name. Mm. But you don't need to in a community because love is generous and reaches out to all of the people who are there, I think. Mm. Naked, I'm going to come all the way to the other end of this group and ask you what question you'd like to ask of someone of another generation on the panel. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Um, mine is to Celeste. Um, we're not that far apart in age, really, but kind of I feel like a lot has changed between like when you were maybe my age and whatever. So my question is, um, how has it, how has feminism in our community, so our, we're both black, um, how has that changed or what, what have you observed since you started identifying as a feminist? Because sometimes even in our, in our own community it can be a bit of a dirty word. Yep. Um, yes, what's different? Okay, what's different? Um, I think that, I mean, I first started identifying really loudly and proudly as a feminist when I was 16. And um, when I got to university amongst, um, amongst the Aboriginal community, the first thing I noticed was that any Aboriginal women identifying loudly and proudly as a feminist was extraordinarily rare. And the reason wasn't that they weren't feminist and they didn't practice feminist principles or, um, you know, they weren't incredibly strong women who'd fought many, many battles. It was, um, it was due to how they interpreted feminism and the fact that a lot of them felt that it wasn't relevant because they felt that it, um, it tended to focus more around the battles of mainstream white women and it wasn't that inclusive. So the, there'd been a number of, um, I guess I went to uni in the late 90s. At, at that point, there'd been a number of um, arguments that had happened within feminist conferences and that about, you know, why it was that the feminist movement wasn't necessarily embracing the, the issues of Aboriginal women and Aboriginal women trying to make the argument that, you know, if you, if you actually start working towards us and start working towards our liberation, then everyone else gets to benefit because we're on the lowest social rung within the country. Um, you know, unless, unless um, the, the uh, Aboriginal women in question, and I'm thinking of people like, say, Lisa Belair, for example, who's got her... Ex um, sorry, there's an exhibition of her photos on right now. But unless they were that sort of strong, hardcore, you know, had taken that stand, then, yeah, Aboriginal women identifying as feminists was incredibly rare. Um, what's changed is that, you know, I think that feminism is a, is a dirty word and that... Um, that battle between trying to get recognition not just as Aboriginal people but as Aboriginal women on a much broader scale is the same. But I'm seeing a lot of young Aboriginal women activists who are actually actively standing up and calling themselves feminists and doing so proudly and staking out that claim. And I think that a lot of that is due to the... We had a real sort of lull in political movements. It's now due to a really, really vibrant activist culture that I'm seeing amongst younger ones. And I think that, you know, the battles that we feel within the activist sort of movement and the fact that, 
you know, when we're not fighting the white patriarchy, we tend to fight the black patriarchy for recognition of what we do, has caused a lot of the younger generation of Aboriginal women to actually state, no, this isn't good enough, I'm doing as much work and if not more than what you are and I deserve some sort of recognition for it. So I need to fight the battle not just on a race but on a gender sort of basis. So, yeah, I'm really, really excited by the fact that a lot of younger Aboriginal women are just proudly declaring themselves feminists and telling the world that they need to deal with it. Celeste, do you want to also ask a question? Oh, gosh. Um, we can take a break. <laughs> yeah, no, I might take a break. No worries. Van, do you want to ask a question of someone on the panel? Yeah, I'm going to be a bit thorny. Um, I'm going to ask Nick, because I don't know your position on this, but um, especially as a British-based feminist... I'm in the middle here, generationally, so I bridge uh, second wave and third wave feminism. And certainly I was taught by second wavers, but I would identify myself as a third waver. And the reason why I was able to shift and develop my feminist politics uh, was because I had contact with both of those generations of thought. Um, I've gained an incredible amount of understanding, particularly of... Um, of sex worker rights and sex worker feminist politics from my involvement in things like the Slutwalk Collective in Melbourne and been really enriched by that experience. In Melbourne recently, we had uh, a conference, ostensibly a feminist conference that was held at RMIT that talked about sex work while deliberately excluding sex workers. And I'm sure that a lot of women here were really very shocked that that took place and that there's a real division in... Um, second and third wave thought around transgender inclusion, which was, of course, an extremely explosive issue when I was at university and some very hostile transphobic attitudes that used to police feminist spaces. Because I've gained so much by generational contact and engagement with a variety of different feminist points of view and an engagement in feminist discourses, I actually find it quite disturbing uh, that there's a no-platforming movement in Britain that denies space to women who have opinions that I would consider hostile because I look at something like Town Bloody Hall and go, you have a generation of feminists who are willing to take on Norman Mailer and to provide him a platform and to engage that in a proactive activist context to actually make arguments against positions that were hostile and openly aggressive in his case, deeply misogynistic and hateful, but to create a space in which that conversation could be had. And I'm interested in, like, I, I'm interested in how we are to proliferate inclusive and critical thought if we're also engaging in no platforming. Wow, Heavy question. Hi, question. my name's Van Bonjour. <laughs> I'm a little bit tired, but I'll do my best. Uh, no, great question. Thank you. Uh, actually, this is coming up a lot in conversation this week, of course, and um, maybe it's just good to name that. I'm assuming you're talking... One example that you might be citing is of Jermaine Greer and the comments that she made about um, w what a woman can and cannot be, which obviously was upsetting and alienating and um, hurtful to all kinds of different communities. Um, and just in case anybody doesn't know what's happened since then is that when she's been due to talk in different uh, university contexts, for instance, and things like this, she's been what's called no-platformed, which um, means that people have excluded her contributions or denied her contributions to the things that she was booked in to do. 
Um, yes, I think the real question is how can we how can we have a dialogue? And I think I don't know. I guess when I was talking about this the other day, I feel. There's so much going... It's such an incredibly complicated and sensitive issue. And actually, I'm not on... I'm not uh, first-hand receiving those, those comments that Jermaine Greer made about trans women, but I can empathise from a different position. Um, but in terms of me understanding really, truly what that feels like for somebody, that hurt or that denial of their own choice of identity... Um, I, I can't know that, but I can know that it must hurt. Um, but it's interesting, I think, with Jermaine Greer, although I don't personally, this is completely personally, but I, I don't agree with the things that she says in that way. Um, but I think what's incredibly interesting in terms of the UK is that we are surrounded by all kinds of real idiot men who say stupid shit every single day, like every single day, and they are still put on the platform and championed as leaders. Um, I don't agree with what Jermaine Greer said. However, how interesting it is uh, to see what has, to see the fallout of those comments. I think, you know, partly it's because it feels like she's kind of going after her own in a way. So it's like, why would you do that? But it is, it does bring up other questions about, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, the way, the way that provocative things, the way that women and men are treated in each case. I mean, Boris Johnson. You know, look at him. He says ridiculous things every day. But in terms of how to have a dialogue, I think for me there's a question about violence in language, which I think is at the root of that particular issue in that I think maybe some of that language was violent and that what happened was a violent response because that's sometimes what people have to do to defend their identity, to defend their position. Women have had to do it for a long time. Um, so I don't know. I guess for me, a lot of my own work is about discovering spaces where people can, where people can come together and some of those defences can be let go a little bit so that we can really listen a bit better to one another and actually we can find a way to communicate with empathy and care and understanding. And it doesn't mean that there's not disagreement. It doesn't mean that it's monocultural. Absolutely not. I hope not. But yeah, I guess, I suppose it's about creating these spaces, I think. I don't know whether that answers your question. I think that's a brilliant answer. <laughs> okay. Can I have an experience? Sure. Do we need the, the roaming mic? Great. <laughs> wait, 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 so we can hear you. Um, after a gender conference in UniSA, South Australia, I saw a notice board that some women were gathering in Townsville to celebrate Mary Daly, who'd been a huge hero of mine. I didn't realise she had passed away. So I went up there and there were all these lovely, amazing old guard lesbian feminist separatists, including the women that ran Spinifex Press and these beautiful, beautiful women. And I did come out and say, wow, I never read Mary Daly realising that being heterosexual or having babies didn't mean you couldn't be right into her. I, she totally inspired me when I was first pregnant. But anyway, to get to the point. So I was in, online in an association with these lovely women and I did see this rise up of people 
that were angry about the inclusive issues about sex work people and trans people. But I did see there was just as much, I thought quite awful and very, very organised activism coming from that side that said they were being excluded, who was like demanding that some of these other women be taken off programs where they were going to speak at conferences and things like that, because they said, oh, you, you talk about women sex workers that they are being exploited. Therefore, you're the one that's bad and you shouldn't be allowed to speak on the conference, et cetera, et cetera. So I just wanted to say it's coming both ways, which maybe what you... I don't know about the Germanic I would really incident, disagree with that, actually. Well, I that's think... what I actually experienced. I even changed my name on Facebook because I felt so endangered that I'd just spoken up against that kind of angriness that was even going as far as demanding that some of these great old speakers, I reckon, be taken off... I, don't, I think for people who are oppressed, and we have to recognise that within our own feminist community, um, that there are that there are different types of oppressions. And if you're a sex worker or if you're a trans person, then you know it's a lot harder um, to tell someone how to respond to their own oppression is not a cool thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's like. It's like being a black fella. When people tell me that I'm too angry or whatever... If, like, recently I had this white dude try and tell me, like, oh, you should respect everyone the same or treat everyone equal. No, don't tell me how to respond to my own oppression. And I imagine it's the same for sex workers and trans people and poor people and queer people or whatever. So it's kind of like you're expecting people to who are rightly pissed off to be really kind in how they're pissed off, to be really empathetic in their anger. And I, I just don't know if that's a cool thing to do. But thank you for sharing. Anyway. No, that's great. Kate, did you have a response as well? Um, well, we've sort of quite... It doesn't really respond to this precise issue, but it does bring up something I've been thinking about quite a lot over a long time, which is that we often get into discussions where we um, try to be... Uh, around inclusivity, a lot of the discussions that that give rise to these um, these issues, these very sort of hot button issues, are around inclusivity. And I think for me, it's time to start talking about what it is that we're actually against, because we might be talking, oh, are we lesbians meeting together? Are we women of colour? Are we women with disabilities? And whenever we start, or men of colour, are we start? Whenever we start talking about this, we end up itemising a list, which is actually the ma more than the majority of the population. And it seems that really, I want to start talking about male supremacists, because when we're still talking about the sort of, in the end, I think for many of us, that's what, our, what unites us in feminism, rather than trying to, and I'm not, I'm not one that's all sort of, you know, fuzzy and warm and whatever, I just sort of feel that we, <laughs> we spend a lot of time trying to sort of pick apart, you know, the, the differences when really the... Uh, yeah, and, and solving problems, being asked to solve problems ourselves, when in fact the, one of the major problems that we really should be setting our sights upon is male supremacy and the way... the violence of language and the way in which we see... and, I, you know, we can't leave it out... you know, the sort of Eddie Maguire-type oh. things, which have to be named because these are just treated as if they are acceptable. They are not acceptable, and in fact, I think the majority of the population says they're not acceptable, but we all approach it from different points of view. So I want to sort of make a clearer target of so many people's oppression is 
whatever variety of male supremacy one wants to talk about, but that, to my mind, is what we ought to be asking people, not whether you're a feminist, but whether you're a male supremacist. Let's um, lean a little bit harder into that um, <laughs> violence. <laughs> and then, would you mind um, sharing what we shared at um, pre-panel? Hi, I'm going to read you My Week at Work by Van Batten. <laughs> so, I did something really... I did two naughty things on the internet this week. I wrote a column in The Guardian um, basically identifying the class war that is represented by Malcolm Turnbull on all wage earners in this country by deconstructing the fake tradie in the context of the decline of Australian manufacturing, which affects everybody. That was very naughty because that was very popular and they had just made a very nice ad. Um, and the other nasty thing that I did was I got on the scomophobia bandwagon on Twitter, um, attacking Scott Morrison's very tender feelings about being an oppressed, second most powerful person in the country, white, bigoted, Christian male who hates everyone. Um, <laughs> And I'm processing my scomophobia because I, I don't want to hate anybody. And yet, oh, he's provoking me. Um, so what happened was I, I have a very big Twitter following. I have quite a social media presence. I have a column in The Guardian. The right don't like that. So um, they responded the way that they do with these tweets. Van Batten, what a slag. Imagine taking her home to mother. My mother would have kicked the bitch's teeth in. And my personal favourite... It's only the unfuckable being unspeakable again. On reflection, you wouldn't even fuck Van Batten with Shorten's dirty dick. I get a hundred of these a day. <clears throat> yeah, and so these people I, run the country. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess, uh, um, and we will come back because we haven't all asked our question and I think that that's an important exercise, but I can't help but feel that the violence that we're identifying, and it might be linguistic or language-based, and it might be physical, um, or it might, yeah, it seems to me that it, um, that that's something that we could peg that we m may not have had progress on. Um, who, how do you feel about that, I guess, Kate, from a, from a longer perspective? Well, Again, it's something, I suppose, from a longer perspective that has begun to crystallise for me. And I saw it again on that useful resource that we all consult, Facebook. And um, I wrote it down because it, was, it just brought everything together for me, which was when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. And also a quote from Robin Morgan. In the long run, it's going to cost men a lot of privilege, which no one gives up willingly or easily. And I think that's what we're seeing, is that we've sort of dispensed with every other excuse that one can get, find as to why women aren't in positions of power. They're more capable than most men in a comparable position to them. Uh, you know, so every argument is gone. It's actually just now about male men having to give up power. And that's why I think it's getting nasty. So I, I think nice. it's becoming clearer and clearer that male violence comes about when there are blokes who don't understand or accept feminism at all. That's where it's coming from. Celeste, what's your ex experience or perspective on that? Um, oh, I, I had a similar week to Van. Not quite as... There was no shortens dicks in it, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think that... The, um, I'll just read out one that I got earlier this week. So I've, um, I used to, I, I honestly, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty notorious on Twitter if I get any sort of bagging out of um, making sure I 
fire off some sort of smart-ass response and then blocking them. So, you know, one of the things that these dudes want is the last word. They're invading our space because they feel that they have the right to impose their sorts of views on us. And so the, the ability to actually get the last word in and then block them is something that is a, is a tactic that I've come across. <laughs> But um, there was a there's a photo of me on my Facebook page. I've I've had a I've had a few this week. But photo of me on my Facebook page. Some bloke felt it was appropriate to talk about how good looking he felt that I was. Someone another one had jumped in and said that, um, oh yeah, that's real appropriate. You know, a feminist sharing all of her intellectual thoughts and all you can focus on is her looks. Blah de blah. Fast forward a few months and we get this. Um, this is hilarious. Complimenting a woman on her looks is now misogynistic. Is recognising that she is a woman also offensive to anyone? Should we ask her if she identifies as a woman? I see she identifies as a black woman, which is confusing in itself. <laughs> I'm sure she loves playing that card when it suits her while enjoying walking down the street as an obvious-looking white woman. Now... I've never been mistaken for a white woman in my entire life. Um, and, I, I, you know, part of me was sort of laughing at that thing. I mean, I've clearly got non-Indigenous heritage as well as Indigenous, but I've always been too dark to ever just be thought of as white Australian. It doesn't work. And yet he was attacking me on that, you know... First it's, first it's about her gender and then it's about her race and how she doesn't quite fit into either of those. And, you know, it, I think the only thing that I could do in that, um, in that time I was take a leaf out of, books, out of the book of people such as Van, such as Clementine Ford, such as um, Nova Paris recently and actually share it because I'm sick to death of the fact that people feel that they have the right to take up this space, say these sorts of things and we're supposed to accept them all the time with good grace. It's about silencing. They're trying to actually take apart our identities as a way of silencing our voices and therefore sharing them and saying that and, and trying to educate the general public on the fact that no, this isn't acceptable. This isn't stuff that we deserve because we put ourselves out there, we stick our heads above the parapet and there's such a lot of that sort of mentality, the victim blaming, you speak out, therefore you can expect this back. No white dude has ever had to deal with those sorts of comments and therefore sharing them and making sure that these people are outed in some sort of way, to me, I think is incredibly important. So that's how I deal with it. Ben, did you want to offer something to that? Yeah, I because obviously I have to deal with this all the, all the time and I've developed an analysis about why it's happening and why... I mean, I, I think that they're fighting like cornered rats because the discourse has shifted so quickly and a consensus that's based on a representation of what is a majority opinion can't be ignored. And this is the phenomenon of the internet because you've got to remember, like... Um, when I was a, a younger woman, before the internet, we used to get our, our view of what public discourse was from newspapers. And newspapers used to police who was on those pages. 
like hell you ever saw a black person in the opinion pages of The Age or the Sydney Morning Herald, the tabloids of note. And generally you would get one woman once a week in the bottom right-hand corner talking about her family. Like that's what we understood about who was, a la who was enabled to have opinions in society and who, wa who wasn't. Well, the internet happened and the internet happened in such a way, such a, a massive disruption to the way that uh, capitalism engaged with the media. Like you cannot make money from a newspaper anymore. You make money from clicks and hits and shares. And overwhelmingly, the demographic group that spends money on the internet is women. Women spend 60% of the, the money traded through commerce from ad advertising products that are sold through media outlets. So you look at somebody like Clementine Ford. Clementine makes a lot of money for Fairfax because the hilarious phenomenon of the internet is the that women are this extremely powerful capitalist demographic group in terms of the way that you know media trade structures work and the, uh, the but women are you know we're not a homogenous mass we're different we have different experiences how do you speak to that demographic well there's one thing that every woman has in common and it's an experience of sexism that's what we all share and speaking to that demographic is the rise of the feminist commentator like me, like Clem, like Celeste, like, you know, this incredible variety of speakers who were invisible 10 years ago. Someone like Kelly Briggs and Nakia Louie, like, or, or Lydia Shelley, who's the Muslim feminist from Sydney. You did not see those women in the media. So now you have a generation of men who lived and were raised, and I know the demographics of the men who hate me so well because I've seen them in court, um, is that they're white, um, they're, they're usually lower middle class, they've been small business owners, and business hasn't worked out, they've been divorced, they've probably had a negative custody settlement, they live in places like um, the Sunshine Coast and, and don't wish a flood on the Sunshine Coast van, that would be sinful. So moving on from that thought of the lovely floodwaters coming in, moving on, like... Those men, when they were younger, would wake up in the morning and with an inherent sense of superiority of a minimum of 51% of the population. And then probably a few more because they woke up with inherent superiority of being white or being lower middle class. So they could assert themselves without any achievement, without any character attribute, without absolutely anything they had invested or developed in themselves with a social licence to feel superior. And this is what Kate's talking about, about male supremacy. And then all of a sudden, the visible world of who is valid, who is allowed to speak, who can speak, who's educated, who's articulate, who's insightful, who's listened to, has changed around them. And their sense of, of expectation in a stable world has been taken away from them. It's not okay to say the things they say anymore. And the, the image of who, of who is in control of the discourse has shifted. And this is why they are so terrified, because they've lost the only sense of status they ever had. And in a world with, with increasing economic inequality, you have a percentage of the population, and this is what happened with Brexit, and this is what's happening with Trump, of white, lower class or working class men who have lost their means of agency economically, and they are looking for someone to blame. And they are blaming minorities, they're blaming women who are a majority, they're blaming, you know, intersectional interests who they see as, you know, conspiring to take their status away. And that's why they're violent, and that's why they're dangerous. I'm an early childhood educator, and I'm also a feminist, an ardent feminist in my 60s. And I have been incredibly hopeful for a really long time. And one of the things that I keep seeing 
is stuff that I thought, and maybe the suffragettes may have thought decades ago, would have actually been able to have been overturned. And I guess the thoughts that I have about this, and I, I actually agree with the white supremacy male concept, and I think it's our values are formed as human beings, our values are formed at an incredibly early age. And I think that there is an incredible responsibility upon all of us to ensure that very, very young people are supported to develop attitudes that actually engender the concept of equity and equality and equality, and that we are all actually equal. We're not the same, but we are all actually equal, and that there should be a mutual respect between all of us as individuals inhabiting the same planet. And I think it's imperative that we start looking at how, within our early education, and how we each, as whether we be parents or whether we be part of a community, that we actually ensure that our early age people, i.e. early childhood, that we actually make sure that we engender a, a mutual respect, a mutual equality of rights, and I reiterate, we are not all the same, but what we need is to develop attitudes that we are all equal. And I think it's early childhood, I guess, is my, my hope for some, some future changes and developments. And if anybody on the panel has any thoughts or comments, I'd be more than Can happy. Can I respond to yes. that? Yes. <laughs> um, it's linked to the recent discussion that we just had as well. Um, so a little bit about... Um, huh. I'm going to talk a lot about violence. And so if any of this is triggering 1-800-RESPECT, in case anyone needs it, is a good helpline. Um, so I came to Australia um, 16 years ago after... Uh, violence against women at a really mass scale, um, which was racially targeted to people who looked like me. So um, Indonesians of Chinese descent. Um, and uh, at the time I was 12 years old and there were literally hundreds of uh, women and girls, some of them younger than 12, who were violated in the, in the streets and targeted in that way. Um, and that was also part of the revolution that happened in Indonesia in 1998. So those experiences have really shaped um, some of the decisions and choices that I've made in my life. And um, as I've grown a bit older, um, and as I shared earlier as well in terms of my family history, um, all survivors of domestic violence, I'm starting to see the link between um, violence against women at a really, really large scale and then violence against women at a really, really intimate scale, and then violence against women in you know, digital verbal forms as well, and how it is all part of the same, you could call maybe rape culture, that enables that sort of violence. So I just wanna kind of second what you said, Cheryl, in terms of all of us having a responsibility to change, to challenge that rape culture from the very minute details, like for example, in terms of early childhood, you know, not teaching your daughters that you have to kiss that person when they goodbye when they don't want to, because that teaches them that they don't actually own their bodies and they don't have agency over their bodies. All the way to the mass scale in terms of you know um, combating violence in digital media. Um, yeah, so I just thought I'd share that because I'm, for myself, experiencing things at that mass scale and then analyzing the links to the daily minute details and kind of realizing that it's all part of 
this culture that enables violence against women. So how we all have a responsibility to be really careful about how we think about things, how we speak about things, how we action things. Does that make sense? I'm only just starting to make that link. Yeah. Can you give us an example yeah. of, um, like a really tangible example of how we would action that in, an every, in a super everyday way? So I'm the new parent to a six-month-old boy. Oh! Um, <laughs> um, but it's, it was... I didn't know that. It's... I, now I'm going to be too personal. No, when discovering that he was a boy was a weird moment because now I have to raise a feminist son and I wanted to raise a woman. <laughs> so, so tell me, as a, like in a really, really small way, what do we do in our own, because I'm really into that idea that our personal actions manifest on a very big scale ultimately. Can I pass that on to a mother who might want to respond to that? I also don't know or the gender though yet. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's so to absolutely yeah. true. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, um, and there's very little about him at this point that is male anyway. Yeah, you, I couldn't agree more. I can offer something here. It was one of the great things that in the town hall that's used in Nick's brilliant show, um, Jermaine Greer says... Uh, no woman was ever loved for being brilliant. No woman was ever loved for being great. Well, I'm in a heterosexual relationship with a man who adores me and thinks it's wonderful that I have a column in The Guardian and I get into fights with evil Tories all the time. And he was raised by lesbian feminists and it makes a difference. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it, it is... It, like, that responsibility of parenthood is... It, like, you know, I haven't taken that on board myself, but the role that you play as the instigator of the most influential um, constructs, engagement, value systems, ethics, does actually does actually build a better next generation. And I'm, you know, I'm in a relationship that I consider a feminist relationship because of the dedicated parenting of yeah. his um, of his parents. And I'm grateful for that every day. I don't um, want to sound I don't want to sound like an out of the wet. <laughs> but the truth look, when feminism hit, it was as if we were breaking into a new kind of beauty. And all sorts of people could emerge from that understanding and see themselves as equal. Your baby will teach you how to love and nurture him as a feminist. Good point. Can I... Can I, um, I, I there was a lady there. Can I just say one thing? Um, so... As an associate producer at Footscray Community Arts Centre, one of the things that I do is I, um, I've been running uh, workshops on art and feminism with year 10 and year 11 students in Melbourne's West. And for the first time this year, we had two young men in the group, which taught me a lot, actually, because um, having them in the room meant that um, I felt this imperative to have a conversation with them about how to ensure absolute radical consent from you know, their future or current um, female, they were both hetero, I think, um, from what they could tell me anyway. Um, yeah, how to ensure absolute consent from their partners. And we did that through comics, which is so cool. That's cool. Um, but that's, that's maybe one example, you know, because I'm not a parent, right, yeah. Emily, so, um, in which I can relate and try and answer that no, question. That's a great example. Having those conversations yep. um, so that there's no, there's no doubt about yeah, what that is. For sure. Mm. Yeah. I'd like uh, to hear there was from a there was a lady, no, sorry, who wanted to yes. respond. <laughs> yeah. Thanks very much. Um, 
I'm the therapist and um, I work with a lot of people who are in transition and um, I always encourage any of the people I see when in doubt to take credit. So I'm about to <laughs> take a bit of credit for what's happened um, just in a conversation that my, my um, daughter-in-law was reporting to me with her three-year-old daughter just recently and um, obviously the, her, her husband is my son. So I, I tried to bring my sons and my daughter up in particular ways as a feminist. Um, what happened just recently was... Um, my daughter-in-law reported how her three-year-old daughter had said to her, or somebody asked her, what would you like to be when you grow up? And she said, I'd like to be an adult. <laughs> and then she said, I'd like to be an adult with a penis. And I thought, oh, no. But my daughter-in-law went to say to her, oh, um, that's good that you want to be an adult, but you won't. And then she said, um, that's good that you're going to be an adult, but you might not have a penis. And I thought that was really good in the sense that anything was possible and that I guess we've been having lots of conversations in our family about my work always. And I suppose the fact that in the last few years I've been seeing a lot of people in transition, maybe that this has filtered down a little bit. So I'm just wanting to sort of say that I, I think these things are very subtle in families and there's something about being open to possibilities and as a perhaps as a... Um, you know that you can influence people even though you don't you don't preach to them but there is something maybe in families about the sort of topics that come up between people and people with open minds and um and respect tend to sort of share talking about things that um maybe earlier generations mightn't have found so easy cool thank you Thanks. Can I just add on to Sue's point? I just was thinking the initial question about, I don't know if anyone knows Judith Butler's Gender Trouble. It's really great, really great book. <laughs> totally recommend it. But she, called, she sort of calls out this thing that she says, she, she calls it name calling. And when do we first get called those names? when we come out and you know in the performance we we sort of refer back to what we've been called in different moments of our lives like from the moment that you come out they say it's a girl and then from that point it's like oh what a beautiful little princess she is and go on yes do a dance for this person and do this and oh how well how lovely and sweet you are be a good girl now and all this shit you know <laughs> like Cheryl's saying that we get and I just think her idea of name calling of naming it as a name calling and nothing more than that and and how that affects us how that how that confines us into a very binary world we're just moving on from that aren't we yeah. <laughs> I had a I had a boyfriend once when I was at university who said about me let's face it you're not the kind of girl who daddy ever whose daddy ever called her princess and I remember saying and thank fuck for that my dad called me his best friend and I'm proud to be his best friend you can go <laughs> Celeste, did you have something? You uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm probably reverting back to the earlier point about young people, but um, I'll ask the expert here, Nayuka, what's the percentage of Aboriginal people under the age of 25? It's over 50%. I don't know, it might be 60? Yeah. yeah it's I, over 50%. I, I think we're dealing with 50 to 60% of our population is youth population. And um, the the... The fact that we are born into, we're born politicised. So, you know, being born an Aboriginal person in this country means you're born not being able to escape 
politics, political engagement, your, your relations will be involved in political movements and dragging you along to rallies from a very, very young age. Um, I often talk about my own involvement as a young person at um, land rights rallies in Canberra. That sort of political reckoning and social reckoning is something that we take very much for granted and we've got to channel back into the younger generation because they're our majority. We're dying off, you know, still incredibly young ages. Um, and the, that idea that there's older states people within our community is, is thin. We've only got a few figures left by the time they hit their 60s. Um, so... What, what I've noticed within that is while we've got a politicised population and we've got more young people more willing to challenge these systems of oppression from a very, very young age, um, the, the systems of oppression are still existing all around them. So there's kind of a responsibility as an older person within it now. I'm, I'm what, at 38, I'm just over the average age of Australians, but I'm something like 13 years older than the average Aboriginal person. Um, there's, there's a need to challenge those sorts of structures um, in a parallel sort of way so that so that those young people who are politicised don't then turn to the various bits that they can get power from that oppressed sort of situation in order to benefit. So we're talking um, making sure there's older people who are questioning the notions of patriarchy and how they're playing out because Aboriginal men's voices get preferenced over Aboriginal women. We're making sure that systems of capitalism um, are challenged because... Aboriginal people and particularly Aboriginal women who reinforce that whole idea of, you know, Aboriginal people are all on sit-down money and if they just got up and earned, to, you know, worked a decent day, which is the, the sort of... cows. Yeah, yeah, the, the cash cow sort of dialogue, the sort of... Um, the things that white Australia is most like to think of us, if white Australia can find the one Aboriginal person within the community who agrees with them, that voice gets preference. So we've got to, you know, whilst we're educating young people, we've always got to challenge the, the broader structures that are still in play in order to ensure that any sort of revolution we achieve is the most equitable it can possibly be. Um, just about, the, about raising sons to ideally be as feminist as they can. Um, through just circumstance, my mum predominantly raised me most of my life, and she um, grew up in, in India in a very patriarchal society, and th after marriage as well, she suffered a lot through her in-law's family as well, which is very male-dominated. And as a kid, the first thing that I was taught when I started going to school, and, um, you know, kids hit each other because they think it's playful, and I'd come home and cry, and I'd say, what do I do? And the first thing she says, said was, you never raise a, a hand to anyone. They, they can hurt you, they can beat you up, but you never raise a hand. And I would like to think that that lesson, which was reinforced day in and day out, I would like to think that that's what um, taught me as a kid, that there's no excuse um, to raise a hand. I, I understand there are complications, particularly in terms of fighting back against things in terms of uh, broader repression. I understand that often violence can achieve pro progress, but on an individual level, I think that that's really what helped me was the notion that regardless of what another individual does to you, you never retaliate in the same way that you, you show 
ideally by example. And I know that's a very idealistic perspective, but uh, I don't know, as ha someone having a young child who may be a boy, um, I think that might be a, a thing that might help, is what I wanted to say. Cool. Um, I think it's really interesting that we are talking about young people in childhood so much. I think that's great. Um, Candy. Oh, great. I can project, but <laughs> I want to get now I'll you talk down like I'm on the radio, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I just wanted to say working in um, Nick's work and the work, the crazy, crazy work I do, like I just worked on straight white men at MTC and Hot Brown Honey, created that with my sister. And um, I think that something that's really come to me quite strongly as a, a young woman who grew up feminist, completely feminist from about six, um, in a matriarchy, um, and, and growing up in a country like Australia, I think it's impossible not to let go of our implicit bigotries, our implicit homophobia, our implicit white supremacy. And a lot, a lot of um, the time spent here at the moment, or for me and Nick, was about going who wasn't in the room, um, which was pretty much anyone of colour. Um, so even in this room, I think we have to constantly question all of that stuff because when we put on hot brown honey, the room is, looks very different mm -hmm. and we can't pretend that that's not a thing. I, think, I, I don't think anyone's completely denying it, but it's so present and it's very present for women of colour. And when I think about like Jacqueline, who I kind of embody in the work, she talks about not being able to fight for the civil rights movement and I think to myself, I wonder if she has black domestic help in 1971. So, you know, with Rose Porter sitting on the back of the bus while the suffragettes were getting their vote, I think it's impossible as a feminist, as a true feminist, not to constantly think about all of your Mexican and black and trans sisters and brothers. Um, but I also wanted to just bring up a, a, a feminist from that era that is really potent for me now and I think it's about um, remembering and this work is a lot of remembering and a lot of ritual, which is Audre Lorde. And I know a lot of people don't know who she is, but I think she's one of the most significant writers who kind of kills me softly every time I read from her. Um, and I just wanted to say one, one quote that I know helps me, you know, um, <clears throat> deal with my chosen profession. <laughs> Um, if I didn't define myself for myself, I would be crunched into other people's fantasies for me and eaten alive. So this is a black lesbian woman running poetry and rap workshops in the early 70s, maybe three years after Martin Luther King has died. So I think that we often, um, I feel, feels like super powerless in a place where we have so much privilege and the privileges that we have, having recently gone back to South Africa to do a show, it's actually extraordinary. We actually can be feminist in a country like Australia. It's very difficult for black South African women to be feminist because if you're like, damn it, I'm just gonna go out and go to a restaurant on my own and just go and get my hair cut. It's not a possibility. You will be raped. I experienced it, so many things over there myself. So I feel like there is an extraordinary amount of power and privilege here. And I don't always think that we use it and, um, and think about our poorest and, and, and uh, our sisters that are in the hardest positions 
because we do all have a responsibility for all of womankind. Um, so I, or, I, I love everything. I love everything about feminism, but they're the people I think about the most. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm so glad you spoke because um, you're deadly, but <laughs> it, it is really interesting coming to these sort of spaces and you're probably all going to feel a bit uncomfortable with what I'm about to say, but that's cool. Um, and it's important to feel uncomfortable. Often the first people to ask a question or to take up space in a place like this are white people. So we're talking about male supremacy, but we also need to think about white supremacy. So there's enormous privilege that comes with that. And often, yeah, it's really funny that these spaces, like, so rad that women are speaking up, but also, like, often I'll come to stuff like this and not one... You know, there'll be people of colour in the room, but not one will get a chance to speak. Um, and I've also observed it in classrooms where I've done workshops where, you know, black kids or whatever will put their hands up to ask, you know, answer questions and the teachers won't, you know, won't pick them out to answer the question. It happens so much. So we can't really call ourselves feminists if we're not for everyone, I think. So thank you so much. Um, yeah, thank you for that also. Um, I... Yeah, I've kind of been wanting to say something and I wasn't quite sure what it was, which is usually what stops me from saying something in these kind of contexts. Um, but I think that thing is about greater structures and structures, and this is a very personal thing, but for me it comes down to structures of listening and how we listen within a space and how actually in, in the way that we set up the very space, how we think about how does someone speak in a way that isn't what's already understood as articulate? Because those are the spaces where we might actually talk about difficult things and talk. Because I've been in, I've, I've been in, you know, some really great discussions where somebody will say something. It's super interesting and it sits in a really difficult way in the room. And then what happens from that incredibly potent moment is that the discussion gets moved on because because it's all about talking, it's all about speaking, and the next person speaks or somebody says something to kind of ease the moment. Mm -hmm. So for me, a really big question is how do we create structures where awkward silences can be <laughs> and can be potent and, and really think about how do we move forward from that place in a way that isn't then about negating what's just been said or... and 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 also creating structures where we can actually hear those voices that don't sound like us. So, you know, I'm interested in your position as chair and, and who you are and what you stand for and the power in that position and how you... And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you have all thought about this, but the very structure of this and who gets to speak and how and, yeah. So, um, thank you. <clears throat> um, and in that position as chair, I have to be the one that say, says it's ten past three. Um, so, um, are there? Um, let's give ourselves another five minutes. Are there things to, that we um, that people feel haven't been covered, apart from everything? Um, <laughs> Hang on, though. You're doing the thing. You're doing the thing that she was just talking about. Sorry, I'm sitting at the balcony, dance floor, balcony metaphor. That's um, fine. Where do you want it to go? Do it. <laughs> oh, no, it's go just interesting it. to observe that we were just talking about yeah. uncomfortable moments. Mm. And this isn't an attack on you. It's fine. We all do, do it, it. because fine. when 
when we feel uncomfortable, it's a very human desire to want to like move on to where we do feel comfortable. Um, yeah, so it's just interest very interesting to observe it play out just as you'd said the thing. Um, Okay, good. Love it. I was, I was really interested um, in how um, it, it's very easy, we're talking about binaries, how it's very easy to adopt the labels and, and, and talk about white su supremacists or male supremacists. Mm. And the characterisation of the males that you, you gave, you know, um, uh, that your long and sort of uh, your experiences as a journalist and and the way you've you've seen patterns, and in that I heard um, I heard that the that the men are um, uh, they're privileged, they're uh, lower middle class, they're they're suffering, they're the ones that are copping, copping they're not being able to um, fulfil their their dreams, or then they're not being able to. Um, uh, establish a strong enough identity themselves, which we as feminists can can do because we can talk to one another, we can reflect, we can get a sense of self, whether whether, whether we're Aboriginal or or a 60 year old or a, or a, um, a, a trans person. We we can because we're working with other other women, we can we can assume an identity. We get support in 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 developing our identity. I hear. That I, I'd want to make a case, or at least ask the uncomfortable question: um, Is is the the male that we're talking about, the one that we characterise as, as somehow an ignoramus, an adult, and a um, a, a, a destructive person? Uh, we we haven't really talked about the unformed identity, the 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 person lost, or the or the person that hasn't been educated. Um, or socialised in another way, and, and someone that we should equally be sympathetic about. And, oh, I'm, and I'm very way, and and find a way to um, uh, not just classify, not not um, not uh, 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 put put them in a scrap heap. They're they're a work in progress, and we do have a, a way to um, uh, just the same. Uh, we we do have a responsibility to to change the attitudes. But we, we can't change the attitudes unless we can see people as the same, um, that we're fundamentally the same, and find those spaces for the, for the males. No matter how shocking they are, we've got to find a way to, um, to uh, n not just dismiss them as, uh, and, and, and just realise that um, uh, they haven't had the, 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 the time. I, I often think of... The, the whole Eddie Maguire thing with, with his um, uh, dick swinging, it was really about him proving himself in front of males, not, not necessarily putting a woman down. Women have always been put down by males who are competing with one another, especially 
insecure or fearful men. And yeah, of, of course. And that's why the most powerful word in the universe is solidarity. Because solidarity is an action which is also a form... I'm going to get a bit of old-school Marxist. I believe in the propaganda of the deed. The structures that we build as feminists, the debates we have about inclusion and representation and who speaks and who is platformed to make somebody uncomfortable, that's a form of social education that we transmit into every area of our lives. You know, engaging with structures which are different teaches other people how to build better structures themselves. And I always get really frustrated around, um, you know, discussions of women and feminism that aren't about structures of solidarity like trade unions. Whenever I meet a feminist who's not a member of a trade union, I think, do you not understand the implicit power of an organised, collectivised sisterhood and what that means in a capitalist society in the workplace and the values that that transmits about dehierarchialising, about empowering, about enfranchising, about equalising. That's how we reach those people. That's how we teach better value. I think I'll also jump in here. I think it's I think it's really great that you personally have the time and the empathy to do that in your own personal life. That's wonderful, um, like, tops. But I don't, and I don't mm. expect other black people I know to, like, hold the... Not only experience the oppression, but then also, like, walk the other people, mm. the ones who are oppressing you, through your own oppression. That mm. That is... That's like triple the emotional labour. It's so tiring. And I'm when people tell me about, you know, we should all be, you know, colourblind politics and we should all hold hands and stuff, like, yeah, great for you if you want to, if you personally have the time and the emotional energy to do that. A lot of us don't because we're fucking exhausted and we're tired and we're upset and we don't... Why should we also take on the responsibility of walking some fuckwit through what we have to face? But let us, let us go back. Let us go back to 1970 and to the great sense of hope that there was then and to understanding that a sense of the loss of what you never had can be the beginning of real solidarity. And you may not be able to hold my hand, but I will hold yours. Yeah, I just meant more like white dudes, but... Um... <laughs> But I'm, I'm so down to hold your hand, Lady Lorna. And the fundamental reality is that if we reshape the world, white dudes have to live in it. And when we abrogate participation in structures of power and actually engaging how institutions work, how organisations work, that's when, that's when their resentments ferment and calcify into their own structures. And that's why it was so interesting for me yesterday, because I lived in England for 10 years, I was fucking devastated by Brexit, absolutely devastated. I saw the triumph of, of, of evil, of misdirected anger, of taking tensions out on the wrong enemy. And I came to see the show last night and thank God I did. Like three hours of being reminded and Candy found me crying in the interval, just so overwhelmed and so grateful to be here. And Candy said to me, it is not going to be okay, but we will still be here. And the need to engage and to organise and do the hard work and build the world that we want it to be and a woman's place is in the struggle. Don't get mad, get elected, you know, organise. Don't agonise, organise. The reasons why feminists have said these things is because they are important and because they bring change. And like I said, there are more of us than there are of them and they should be recruited into our revolution, not we be subservient to their structures. Being called oppressor, I for one 
you know, warrior black woman do not like being called the oppressed. But I, I'll, I'll make a deal with these guys and women. Um, I'll stop being called a rape vi victim if you stop raping us. That would be awesome. We're talking about power, mm. huge power structures. Um, a lot of white folks that I know that I'm teaching in my industry about racism because they think there's such thing as racism towards white people. And when I describe to them the reason why that is not a true thing is because of structural and systemic forces that keep us in place. Um, it's, it's a really new thought and idea. And for me, again, I don't have time for that education because I'm defining a whole new generation of, of women of colour to, to actually be able to speak. I've been out bush and done my kids' show and um, there are young Aboriginal girls in this day and age growing up that don't speak at all. 10 years old, 11 years old, no voice. And I thought to myself, well, that's the Australia we're living in. That, that those children are embodying what we feel in this country. Our suicide rates, our sexual assault rapes. Um, I, I really absolutely reject the idea of hugging it out or um, yeah. spoon feeding people that are continually denigrating, particularly women of colour, as a First Nations woman from South Africa to my sisters here. Around the world, First Nations women are the most missing, the most raped. Um, and in South Africa, what we see under something like apartheid, now we see white women being murdered by their husbands as a trend. Oscar Pissaris is one of a trend because, once again, power has been turned around. And when men go home who have no power at work, they take it out on their families. Now, these are huge structural and systemic oppressions. And um, I really feel like inside of the monolith of that, the only space is radical self-love and support for women of colour. And I feel like um, there's so much suspicion for us still and there's so much invisibility and door shutting and, um, you know, not finding platform and... Uh, um, it's a constant thing I see in the arts. Like even in this building, we saw a picture that we found dis distressing. Uh, I it's not I, there anymore. It's been taken it's down. It's been taken Pound down. <laughs> but, um, you know, even in a, a space like this, let alone the MTC or the Malt House that I'm constantly in battle with, why are our artistic buildings not calling on women of colour to be in the hive mind of, of work? Um, no white work and not even white feminist work represents our histories also. It isn't universal. We all wish it was, but fuck, we're not there yet. We're nowhere there yet. No way. Can I, can I share an experience that talks to that, Candy? Also, you're awesome. Um, so again, as part of my work, uh, I already said about the art and feminism workshops. So also this year, we worked with um, a school called Gilmore College for Girls. Does anyone here know? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not from the TV show, yeah, like the actual college. Um, it's, um, it's in Melbourne's West, and um, the students there tend to come from, you know, lower socioeconomic backgrounds, and um, cultural diversity in that school is off the charts. I was really fucking excited about working with them. And um, the way that I kind of do the invitation to my workshops is I basically do a pitch. This is what we're gonna do over the next 10 weeks. Um, you get to uh, explore two art forms, in particular spoken word poetry and comics, and we cover a topic on feminism every single week, and then you create an artistic outcome at the end. 
And um, when I walked in the room, I noticed that maybe 60% of the girls um, wore hijabs, and then about 20% were of African descent, and then 10% Asian descent, and then there was like one token white girl. Like, cultural diversity off the charts, amazing. And I made my pitch, and then um, six out of 15 of the young women opted in to my workshops. Um, but not a single one of the visibly Muslim girls um, came in. And that, for me, was like the start of a lot of kind of like, why, why, why? Because when I walked in there, I could see a few of them were really excited at the thought of this workshop. You know, I could see, you know, when I'm pretty sure I wasn't projecting. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I was like, oh, why is that? And it made me think a lot about who is doing the invitation to the, this conversation on feminism and how do I read in that space? You know, it's like down to the detail of like how I speak. I have quite clipped consonants that probably spe speaks, you know, upper class, you know, private school girl. Yeah, totally. Um, and then, you know, I, the clothes that I wear, you know, like, I'm, like I've got fucking tattoos. I'm like a fucking hipster from inner city Melbourne, you know. How does that read in that space? And so it's made me think a lot about next time we do this invitation to this new conversation on feminism, should I be the one doing that invitation? I don't think so, actually, in that school, in that context. It should be someone that I think these young women of that particular diverse still, cultural backgrounds and economic backgrounds, can relate to more. Um, I hope that kind of speaks to what you were saying a bit, Candy. I was just trying to kind of jump on that thing about it's really important who makes the invitation and how they read in that particular context. Because if they can't relate to you, why the fuck is it relevant to them? It's not relevant to them, you know? Um, yeah, just wanted to share that. I think something else that's really important, um, touching on what Van was saying, like, whilst I don't have the time and many other people I know don't have the time to hold hands and whatever, like, there are a lot of... There are some woke white people, and I feel like it's their obligation that, like, they're the ones... So that solidarity... I just hate the idea of having the additional emotional labour. So I feel like I should point out that, like, that's the role that, you know, awakened white people can have or men or whatever it is. Like, bring your people with you. Like, sort your house out. Um, yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah, Fiona. Yeah. That's a huge issue as well. And often disability is just not even included in diversity conversations. And I know most of you on the panel are totally down with that, but I just wanted to um, acknowledge disability. Mm. Fiona, you work with people with disabilities. Well, I identify, identify as a person with so disability, but there'd be a lot of people um, that, you know, have been institutionalised or don't have words like you're talking or, you know, it's not just... Um, there's lots and lots of layers and there's lots of intersections... And I should, I should just spruik one thing we are doing with Maxine Beniba-Clark and at Writers Victoria in September. Um, we've got a diverse women's writers day, a professional development day. Um, allies are welcome as well, but, you know, we're trying to, like, actually be proactive in how we can change some stuff in um, what's published and what's spoken about and... Yeah, anyway, I just wanted to say about that too. Could, sorry, I'm going to ask you another question. What kind of, <laughs> sorry, what kind of things, um, because professional development uh, is, an, is often a go-to, this is, I can't, you know where I'm going on this, mm -hmm. but it's a, um, it's a go-to for um, rather than, and Candy will be able to agree on this too, rather than just 
programming or publishing different kinds of voices, we start with professional development. That's not a criticism of what you're doing, but I'm interested in what kinds of skills are Well, going a to lot be of these comes down to like say something like the Stella list mm. and Stella definitely are trying to look at that, but a lot of what's chosen to be published, you know, we can if we're doing a Stella the count and we're trying to look at even just women, but trying to look at diversity, it comes back to what's published. And predominantly what's published we know is white um, male voices and then probably, um, you know, female white voices. So um, we have one panel with publishers. Potentially I might be coming to you to, aim to ask you to be on a panel. <laughs> but um, that we're actually going to... It's also what... Um, so this person over here talked about before is how we set up the space... So I'm really interested from a feminist perspective, so it's not hierarchical, that we're acknowledging that the people in the room have as much knowledge, if not more knowledge. Some of the publishers I know that have agreed to... You know, a couple of years ago, we ran a, something at the Emerging Writers Festival for, with the deaf community and deaf writers, and I had a publisher come up to me and say, this is shocking, I'm 35 years old and I've never met a deaf person before. Mm. Um, so, look, I don't have all the answers, but we're at least trying to to do something, there isn't, we don't have a lot of money, but we're just, you know, trying to be organic and include as many conversations, but really acknowledge that the people in the room who we're very open to who comes will have a lot to say and a lot to offer and that people on a panel can't, you know, that, like you are saying over here before, often the people on the panel, you're representing, you know, you're educated perhaps in a certain way or you can speak in a certain way or are confident to speak in a certain way, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, mm. you know, acknowledging that, but also trying to open up some space and also hear what people are sort of seeing as barriers for publishing, but for what's programmed to how to get on panels, et cetera. Cool. Anything else that people want to cover? Um, in, the, in the context of that, I think something that everyone has to be aware of is that men mentor other men White men mentor other white men unconsciously and that those mentoring relationships are a, a legacy of patriarchy. One of the most important relationships, it is emotionally exhausting to train um, assholes not to be assholes, but it is ludicrously empowering and I mean that in sense of giving power over to somebody to mentor people into professional practice specifically in the arts. I have I came to media and journalism really late. My mentor is Jenna Price. She has changed my life. I have someone to call. I have someone who I trust. I have someone who is always going to help me out. And for every woman in this room, like the generational legacies of mentorship are a ludicrously important part of um, enfranchisement and social participation. And when we talk about diversity, we have to be serious about that and offer the skills and privileges and advantages we have to anyone who doesn't have them and to be generous with that offer I think is truly transformative. All right. Generous with that offer and that will be truly transformative. Maybe that's a good place to finish up. Um, thank you all for coming. Um, I feel less scared <laughs> than I did at the beginning um, but also the right amount of scared as well for what we've got to do next. Um, if you can see the show, um, I strongly encourage you to do so. There might be wait lists. You should probably speak to Jackie about that. Um, thank you also. We didn't actually cover it, but I know there's probably participants in the show beyond Candy and Nick in the room. I know Kate is one of them. Um, thank you guys so much um, for, yeah, for, for getting being part of what is a really great work and I'm really excited that it's taking place in Melbourne. Um, 
So, yeah. Thanks for coming. Sorry to send you back out into that cold. Um, there will be a screening now of um, Town Bloody Hall, and it's well worth sticking around for um, just to feel a little bit more angry and a little bit more uncomfortable. Um, thank you, guys. Thank you very much to our panel. <laughs>